morning. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to tuning in online. Uh, as James mentioned, it was, uh, it was wonderful to be together this weekend and uh, just enjoying fellowship and just a spirit of being united. As uh, was mentioned about the Friday night, we had a wonderful time, and thank you, Kelly, for organizing that. It was really, really a blessing to be together, to worship, and to pray. And, uh, and, like, and I also was at Bourget's yesterday, and uh, I thought three events, three church events in a row was going to be a bit much. Uh, but you know, something happens when you do that. It's, it, you experience uh, a deeper level of uh, just being with God's people and being in God's presence. And it was beautiful. And uh, so my, my logical mind always says, well, why didn't we do one of those events another week? so that it wouldn't be watering down, you know, uh, the people attending. But that's my logical mind. <laughs> it was something beautiful about something that was not so logical, but really refreshing. So this morning, as you saw my, the title of the message there is Loving Members and Great Pretenders, The Joys and Sorrows of a New Community. In Acts 4.32 to 5.11, I'll read that shortly for you. But I want to start off with a little, a little story that leads into that. Uh, and, and here's a, a, a story of a community uh, that existed way in the past in the 1960s. Uh, so this 1961, a Dr. Stuart Wolf, then professor and head of medicine at the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine, with the help of sociologist John Brunn, conducted a study of the residents of Rosetto, Pennsylvania, to determine the reason the people of this close small-knit Italian-American community had a significant reduction in the rate of heart disease. Their findings were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1966. The study showed that Rosetto's cardiac mortality rate painted a unique picture. Nationally, that rate normally rises with age, but for Rosetto, it nearly dropped to zero for men 55 to 64 an age group elsewhere at high risk. For men over 65, the local death rate was half of the national average. It was a unique situation where you would have more widows, more widowers than widows in that particular community. The statistics didn't seem to make sense considering the, the way they lived. Apparently many of the Rosetta inhabitants were obese, ate fatty foods, drank, and had other unhealthy habits. However, they still lived longer lives than the average American person in the United States. They skipped the Mediterranean diet in favor of meatballs and sausages cooked in lard. They didn't have olive oil, it was too expensive. They ate soft cheeses and hard cheeses. The men worked in slate quarries where they often contracted illnesses from gases and dust. But Rosetto also had very little crime and very few applications for public assistance. The households made up of, were made up of three generations. The elderly lived with their families and were not put on the shelf, but were instead elevated. It seemed like those unhealthy meals offered nourishment for the spirit as well as the body. In fact, all communal, communal rituals included the evening stroll, also known as the passeggiata in Italian, contributed to the villagers' good health. 
To quote that famous jingle from Cheers, it was a place where everybody knew your name. They built a culture of cooperation and radiated a joyous team spirit. According to the findings, the Rosetta's heart, lower heart disease rate may have been attributed to lower stress. The community was very cohesive. There was no keeping up with the Joneses. Houses were very close together, and everyone lived more or less alike. They had a common goal of working together to take care of their families and had a communal mindset whereby everybody helped one another achieve their objective. In contrast, the report said an isolated individual may be overwhelmed by the problems of everyday life. Such a person internalizes that feeling as stress, which in turn causes health problems. That, however, is much less likely to be the outcome when a person is surrounded by caring friends and neighbors and relatives. The sense of being supported reduces stress and the diseases stress brings about. This phenomenon was now come to be known the Rosetto effect. You can Google that. The sad thing, however, uh, is that those statistics lasted for only one generation. As the next generation grew, they prospered more, sought to live in bigger homes. They wanted to pursue all the comforts that the American dream offered. So they moved away uh, into these uh, uh, bigger suburban areas. As a result, their health statistics climbed to reach the national average. In The Power of the Klan, an updated report on their studies expanding the time frame now to 50 years from between 1935 and 1984, Wolf and Brunnick observed what was learned seems to confirm an old but often forgotten conviction that mutual respect and cooperation contribute to the health and welfare of a community and its inhabitants, and that self-indulgence and a lack of concern for others exert opposite influences. This week, we are looking at a passage in Acts that will revisit the social cohesiveness that was flourishing in this new community of believers in Jerusalem. We'll call it the Jerusalem Effect, which had a similar but a much more consequential purpose. We got our first glimpse of that in chapters 2, 42 to 47, which our brother Louis preached on uh, that he covered a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a growing love affair amongst these new believers that was producing a spirit of radical generosity. It got to the point that many were inclined to sell their possessions so that there would be no needy persons amongst them. In addition to enjoying the apostles' teaching and fellowship, they prayed and broke bread together. Signs and wonders continued to be manifested through them, and their numbers were growing day by day. Their faith was soaring, and their actions, along with the apostles' preaching, was powerfully testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as the church expanded, adversity and persecution was also growing. As the Spirit of God was enabling and assisting his followers to accomplish his mandate to testify perseveringly of his salvation through his death and resurrection, so did the devil's schemes continue to play an active role to subvert God's redemptive plan. This time, the persecution would not come from outside the church, as we read in previous weeks, but it would come from inside the church. 
In the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we are introduced to the first incidents of sin in the church age and the first incidents of discipline that followed. So I will read now the text from, verse, from chapter 4, verse 32 to 511. You could follow along with the slides here or if you prefer uh, on your phones or Bibles. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him, wrapped, up, wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, and they carried, out her, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So today I will cover the following outline uh, with the title of the message. Uh, loving members and great pretenders, the joys and sorrows of a new community. And uh, here are the, here's the outline, uh, beginning with the uh, characteristics of the early church. So we're looking at the loving members and, and their characteristics. They were unified, they were one heart and one soul, they were generous, they had everything in common, they were powerful, witnessing to the resurrection. And then the second part is the contrast which is Ananias and Sapphira. We call them the great pretenders. And so uh, sin is exposed, and uh, then judgment follows, and we will look at the dangers of dishonesty. And that will be followed up by the conclusion. So the first characteristic we see is that they were unified. Up to this point, and we've seen from the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was moving with great force, and the church was expanding at an incredible pace. It was suggested that at this juncture, the church had reached about 20,000 people. 
So how do we get to that number? Well, when you think about the fact that there were 3,000 men that were saved in Acts 2.41, and then there were another 5,000 men that were saved in Acts 4, verse 4, that makes for 8,000 men. And the Bible only counts the population of men. So you have to consider the fact that they were, they were wives and there were children, and so it estimated there were about 20,000 people. So when we're looking at this story, we're probably thinking it's a little church and Ananias and Sapphira are coming in. And No, this is a much broader situation we're looking at. This exponential growth was due to the fact that the apostles, who previously fled like chickens when Jesus was crucified, suddenly became powerful instruments in God's hand. The people saw how these same apostles spoke with authority about spiritual matters, even though they were common, uneducated men. They witnessed the healings and the miracles that further supported their powerful teaching. They were able to observe how the apostles became bold, even they were, when they were being severely persecuted to the point of risking their lives. Many Christian apologists like Josh McDowell, who wrote a book, Evidence That Deserves a Verdict, years ago, and Neil Senvey, who wrote a book called Why Believe, A Reasonable Approach to Christianity. This is a recent one, by the way. It was written in 2022 and was one of the finalists for Best Book of Christian Book of the Year. Each of these writers write about the fact that to the extent that these disciples were transformed from what they were to what they had become as one of the solid reasons for believing in the resurrection story. There are many other reasons, but this is one of the solid reasons. This should be an encouragement for us today, whether we are skeptical to believe in the gospel or struggling in our faith or we're having doubts. We can gain much inspiration from what took place at that time. We see a strong spirit of unity was being established out of their deep-rooted conviction that Jesus was alive and that a greater way of life was possible by trusting in him. That belief shaped an attitude of cooperation that caused them to lessen their concern for themselves and the things of this world in exchange for the things that mattered to God. It says that all the congregation, the full number of believers, were of one heart and one soul. They did not see themselves as individuals who have their own faith operating independently of one another. They were joined together with the same attitude, the same focus, and the same purpose. Even though they were relatively strangers, when you think about the amount of, of believers that came together at one time and didn't have a long relationship with each other from the past, they are together with one mind because of God's grace working in them. This sort of looks different from how most churches function today, doesn't it? It seems like the attitude, focus, and purposes not always align quite the same way. We may be tempted to disagree on things, things like doctrine, what type of music we play, the type of programs we run, the coffee, is it too, too strong, too light? The air conditioning, is it too strong, too much? How is it now, by the way? <laughs> okay, we need to lower the air conditioning. <laughs> I put that in on purpose. It was strategic. 
always thinking. <laughs> In contrast, the early church didn't seem to be focused on those type of things. They were focused on the one thing, the grace of God. It may have been because they were all relatively new Christians and, and they were ex experiencing the exuberance of being fresh converts. Nonetheless, they remained joyful, faithful, and united, even they, though they were facing extreme persecution. There was risks, huge risks for them to be following Jesus. God had been gracious to them, just as he has been to us 2,000 years later. It is therefore important we strive together to achieve the same level of unity in our fellowship and even in our friendship with other churches. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus not only prayed for unity, but he gave the reasons that Christian unity is important. He asked that all believers may be in the Father and the Son so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then Jesus prayed for complete unity so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When Christians are united in Christ, the world sees two things clearly. Jesus was sent by the Father, and Jesus loves his church. There is hardly a greater evangelism strategy than a unified church. In Romans 5, 5 verses 5 and 6, we see another more general reason why reason that Christian unity is important. Paul writes, may the, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The bottom line is God's glory. God's people should be speaking with one voice in glorifying God and this church was doing that so effectively. The second characteristic we see in the early church is generosity. The power of the indwelling Holy Spirit was compelling the believers to be genuinely caring for one another. This would make perfect sense in the Holy, since the Holy Spirit would naturally align itself with God's, intention, God's intentions to be mindful of the poor, which so persistently was commanded which he persistently commanded the nation of Israel to do. When you read the Old Testament, the charge to take care of the most vulnerable people in the community, whether they are widows, orphans, or strangers, was often repeated. There were a list of commands that the Lord gave to his people. Do not glean over your property twice. Do not trim the edges of, of your fields. Uh, to give a tithe every third year, 10%, for the poor exclusively, over and above everything else. And then the year of Jubilee, where you leave your land fallow. Consideration for the poor was great. And he says in Deuteronomy 5.4, the poor were dearly important to God as he, expressed in the, they're, they're, as he expressed himself by saying, there should be no poor amongst you. But now generosity was being practiced more dynamically because it was coming from a Jeremiah 31, 33 perspective of having the law written in their hearts, those same laws written in their hearts. 
It was the force of the Holy Spirit. And when we're talking about the book of Acts, we also talk about the acts of the Holy Spirit. We've been mentioning this over the weeks. The acts of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit keeps creating these natural inclinations for these early believers to exercise a more radical and enthusiastic form of generosity. We read in that verse 432, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but that they had everything in common. Now, if you read that verse out of its proper context, you may be tempted to, cut, to arrive at a wrong conclusion. <clears throat> at first glance, it gives the impression that they sold everything they had, everybody had to put everything into a common pool, and then everything was divided, right? I asked some very sincere brothers as I was preparing for this message. I asked them if, if they would be willing to do that. And they said, maybe, but, but you would have to go first. <laughs> you may be relieved to know that this is not the case, as the verse in 5.4 helps clarify the fact that giving remains voluntary. Here, Peter is challenging Ananias about the selling of his property, and he said to him, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So what Peter is saying here is that if your property and its profits were yours to do as you felt, why would you choose to lie and pretend you had given it all away? His response to, to, to Ananias clarifies for us that we are not required to surrender private ownership. As a matter of fact, we don't see that model anywhere else in the New Testament. Certainly this communal sharing that we see in both chapters two and chapters four are a beautiful picture of generosity and love. But it is impossible to show that these passages teach socialism given the voluntary nature of the giving. In seeking to understand this Jerusalem effect, we have to be wise to avoid extreme positions. We can't dismiss it as a foolish mistake that those believers made because of their reckless enthusiasm over their newfound faith. Nor can we say that the Jerusalem church laid down an obligatory model of communism or socialism that all churches should copy today. So what can we learn about generosity from these early Christians in these verses. I want to suggest three things. First, we see that they adopted a mindset of stewardship rather than ownership. What they owned was mainly for them to manage for God's purposes and not exclusively for their own personal use and discretion. We see that in the second part of chapter 432, where it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. The NIV translates uh, that same uh, verse, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. So although their giving remained voluntary, they did not act as title holders of their possessions. It was all God's and, all their, and their responsibility to manage it accordingly. And since it belonged to God, they therefore prioritized prioritize disposing those resources in the things that would be important to him. This is what was motivating them to be more generous. 
They were willing to use whatever funds or property they had to help any of their brothers and sisters in need. So if we let that sink in for a while, we may be prompted to ask ourselves a very fundamental question about our own financial stewardship. It's a two-part question, actually. The first part is, do we really believe all we have belongs to God? Do we really believe that all we have belongs to God? And if I would survey this church, I probably would get a very resounding majority, right? The second part of this question is a little bit more difficult. And if so, are we managing what we have in such a way that truly, truly honors that belief? I would like to suggest a simple perspective that can help us all with that question because it's a question we all wrestle with. We should aim to balance generosity on one hand, generosity on one hand, and on the other hand, simplicity and contentment. And I'll do this with this hand, because it's us. Generosity, simplicity, and contentment. And the other thing would be avoid extravagance, right? Do we need an extravagant house? Do we need an extravagant car? Do we need extravagant clothes? Do we need to go to extravagant rest? All those choices we make. Uh, we should always try to look at it through this lens and be able to live more simply and be content with what we have and therefore express the kind of generosity that would allow us, that would allow those decisions uh, for us to make. Secondly, their, genera their generosity was thoughtful, not random. <clears throat> Verse 33 says that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there, that there was no needy persons among them. They made sure that there was a fair and equitable distribution to meet every genuine need. This meant that they had to be diligent and wise on how they assessed their relief efforts. Having spent some time myself in this area, I'm sure there was, this was no small tax task, keeping in mind how big uh, this community was. Keeping the unity and the momentum of the movement going while addressing individual specific needs must have been challenging. This would have become an obvious area for Satan to attack, as we will see shortly in, in Ananias and Sapphira. However great the risk that is involved for churches to meet various needs, it shouldn't discourage us from making the effort. Years ago, we put together a benevolence policy here at Rosemont Bible Church that has been quite useful in helping meeting critical needs as they arose. However, much discernment is required when we apply it. Sometimes we need discernment when, for example, a random person walks off the street on a Sunday morning and asks for money. They are usually looking for a quick fix and not really interested in a sustainable solution to their poverty. This is not the best form of, of charity. We need to be wise. Uh, we need to be wise and discerning on how we give, give out funds. There's a good book actually that's written on this called When Helping Hurts. And that book talks about that ways that sometimes when we give to charities or give to people, it's doing more harm than good. 
And so we have to be discerning uh, when we do uh, give out uh, things or are exercising charity. Thirdly, their, their generosity was at times radical, which led to sacrifice, uh, sacrificial giving. From time to time, they sold property to be re redistributed. We read how Joseph, who was the apostle named, nicknamed Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, sold a lot that he owned and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was seen as an encourager not only for the way he came alongside disciples on the journey. You remember how he did that with John Mark and even Paul. But he also had a healthy perspective on money and, and uh, used it for the edification of the church. He sold his lot to give to the poor, even though when we see later in 1 Corinthians 6 that he had to work to support himself while on the mission tour with Paul. His example begs the question for us as believers on how much wealth is wise to accumulate. We can be swayed by the mirage that we will be satisfied with more and more possessions. We saw in the example of the Rosettans how simplicity provided them with having less stress and a healthier life. We could learn from such a practical example. Here are two dangers we must avoid when we begin to accumulate wealth. The first danger of wealth is pride. Rich people are tempted to boast of their home, their car, their possessions, their clothes, and their gadgets. If we begin to find pleasure in this, then we may be veering off course. We must avoid the pursuit of status as a way of satisfying our deepest longings. The second danger is materialism. Materialism is not merely the possession of, of material things but an unhealthy obsession with them. There is no real security or no lasting joy in wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 makes that point. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what which is truly life. These verses warn us that trusting in riches is foolish. We can, in essence, substitute the good things God wants to bless us with in exchange for the, delu the delusion that we'll find that through material possessions. John Stott quotes in his book, Issues Facing Christians Today, trust in wealth is not only foolish, it is, it is unworthy of human beings, since our trust should be not in the thing, but in the person, not in money, but in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. He goes on to summarize both pride and materialism this way. Here, then, are two main dangers to which rich people are, expo are exposed. Pride looking down on the poor, and materialism, enjoying the gift and forgetting the giver. Wealth can spoil our two noblest relationships. This, this is the important part here. Wealth can spoil our two noblest relationships. It can make us forget God and despise our fellow human beings. Lastly, and I won't spend much time on this point, uh, the early church was powerfully witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What remains constant and is seen throughout the book of Acts 
is how the apostles preached about the resurrection with great fervor. This was a significant feature of their ministry and should be for any good church. Too often today we hear churches wanting to preach either feel-good messages, solve-your-problem messages, or a form of prosperity gospel. This, however, makes the focus about us and not about God and what he has accomplished on our behalf and how we can align with his purposes for our life. And sometimes that's going to involve suffering and difficulty and times of testing. But in the end, it allows us to attain true spiritual joy. We'll see throughout the letter from Peter to Paul that preaching about Christ and the resurrection was at the core of their teaching and should be for us as well. So now we move to the situation involving Ananias and Sapphira. The great momentum that had been building up in the church would soon be faced with this great, real internal crisis. So Ananias and Sapphira, the great pretenders, the sin exposed, the effects of dishonesty. I think most of us, when we read the story, at first we're shocked, right? The first thing that comes to mind is, wait a minute, they gave half the money of what they sold. And, you know, frankly, not a lot of people do that. But the problem is not their lack of generosity. The problem is their dishonesty. They wanted to be seen and admired in the same light as Barnabas. Their motives were hypocritical. They sought to receive the accolades at half the price. Their deceit was also very calculated, very premeditated. Both husband and wife predetermined what their responses would be if they were questioned, since it appears Sapphira had a habit for, for showing up at church late. You know, she came in three hours later. Maybe, maybe it was just that day. Maybe she was having a bad hair day or something. <laughs> Peter is quick to point out the gravity of their sin. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. There's a connection here made that when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are also lying to God, which in passing supports the doctrine of the Trinity, since Peter refers to the Holy Spirit and God as, as the same. This episode with Ananias and Sapphira serves to remind us that God's judgment are carried out in the New Testament as was in the Old Testament. God is holy, and he hates sin, particularly the sin of hypocrisy and dishonesty. From time to time, God pronounces his judgment to get our attention. We see a parallel story in the book of Joshua involving Achan. Achan was stoned to death for disobeying and stealing spoils for himself after the fall of Jericho. It is a similar story to Ananias and Sapphira that an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. There are other instances like that in the Old Testament that violate God's sacred commands. Take the story of Uzzah, for example. You remember the guy who was taking the ark and they were taking, transporting the ark from one town to another? And he tried to save the ark as it appeared to be falling off the cart. And, and God struck him down. It, streamed, it seemed like extreme punishment because after all, he was just trying to save the ark from, from severe getting damaged. But you see, Uzzah was a, a Kohatite, which was part of the Levi tribe, whose sole purpose 
was to take care of the vessels and objects in the sanctuary. That was their only job. Take care of the ark, take care of the lampstand, take care of the showbread. And you just take care of that and bring it. They had a whole team to do this. But yet they put the ark on an ox cart, right? And, uh, and touched it when he, they were clearly commanded that no one should ever touch the ark. His conduct was deemed irresponsible by God and he struck him down. In all these cases, God's commands were violated and judgment followed. He does this from time to time to remind us of his holiness and that our sins are serious and they will be judged. Fortunate for us, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love since he overlooks probably 99.9% of our iniquity, right? What else? What we also learn from Ananias and Sapphira are the dangers of dishonesty. The Bible draws a clear connection between honesty and well-being. In 1 Peter 3, 12, it says, Whoever desires to love life and seek good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. If you want to love life and seek good days, you are required to be honest. A false identity leads to alienation from friends and loved ones. Eventually, a life of falsehood can even alienate you from yourself. Dishonesty is also unproductive. I read a book a few years ago called The Speed of Trust. The big idea was that teams function better and more quickly when there is a high level of trust. When the opposite is true, everything slows down and becomes more dysfunctional. It may be tempting to think, to, to be dishonest, to speed things up, but in the long run, it has the exact opposite effect. You sometimes hear people say they'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. But unfortunately, that's not a good long-term strategy. You end up winning the battle but losing the war, since over time, trust is lost, and it may take a long time, if ever, to rebuild it. I remember years ago, I was in high school, we had a celebrity talk show host. This is going to date me a little bit, but we had a celebrity talk show host visit. His name was Ted Teven. Anybody remember Ted Teven? That's not bad, actually. There's nine of us. <laughs> but Ted, he was a very colorful guy, and he always had, he had, he had this, uh, this phrase that he would use often. When somebody was going on too long or was speaking in circles or was contradicting himself, he would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said this, then you said that, then you said this. You're gone. And he would just take a machine gun and shoot it. You'd hear the sound of a machine gun going. So during the question time at school, one of the kids asked him if he ever lied on the air. And he was quick to say no. And the reason he said no is because that the problem with lying is that eventually you forget a lie. And eventually catches up with you. And as a result, you lose your credibility. That stuck with me as a 10-year-old. I remember that. I said, wow, that's, that's, that's a significant statement. I didn't then ask my question, how many people do you think you killed with your machine gun? <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira had lost credibility because they lied to God. Their generosity was a pretense to bolster their image rather than to glorify God, and God wouldn't have it. Honesty, on the other hand, is sure to deliver positive effects since God himself never lies and is a source of truth. Numbers 23 and 19 makes the point that it is impossible for God to lie. 
If therefore we are created in the image of God, brothers and sisters, we are called to Christ-likeness, then it makes sense to pursue truthfulness in all areas of our life. It's good for us, it's good for our relationships, and it's good for the sake and the glory of God. In conclusion, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is a reminder to us that the day that God sees the heart and that he hates sin and that he's concerned for the purity of his church. As Jesus told the compromising church in Thyatira, Revelation 2.23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay, repay each of you according to your deeds. A reminder, our sins are hidden on earth, but they're open spectacles in heaven. Let us instead pursue the attitude of those in the early church who looked upon each other with grace, carried each other's burdens, and held on to their possessions loosely so that they would not be cut off from the giver of all the good and perfect gifts that come from above. I have one last slide. Uh, Keith, if you can roll down this one. Uh, as we debriefed about what I was going to share uh, this week, one of the brothers said, you know, it made me think of that uh, Psalm 139 uh, that talks about God searching our hearts. I would like for us to all read it because it's as we ponder today uh, what, we, what we learned uh, through the scriptures, uh, it'll be good for us to be refreshed in our hearts and to have God work in our hearts in areas that would uh, allow us uh, to, uh, to work in these areas and for the sake of having unity in our church and for the sake of giving glory to God. Let's read this together. O Lord, search me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there are any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we know our hearts are deceptive and we need the help of your spirit. Help us when we are tempted to choose deceit or any other way that violates your sacred commands that alienates us from you and our brothers and sisters. Teach us to, to be walking in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called, to act humbly and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Help us also to be good stewards of your resources. We are so blessed in this country of abundance, so there's an extra responsibility on us to be good managers of the many things you've blessed us with. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.